Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Brian Marescu will join us to discuss the immortality key. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, did the ancient Greeks use drugs to find God? The earliest Christians inherit the same secret tradition. Well, joining us today to discuss this is Brian Marescu. Marescu is the author of the new book, The Immortality Key The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And Marescu, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. Fascinating book, uh, certainly uh, interesting to put together here. And I'm curious how you decided to come about writing this book. Uh, that's a great question. So, like most kids, my Jones in the 80s and reading the Da Vinci Code in my 20s. And after 13 years of Catholic school and a useless major in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, I figured I was about halfway there. But I needed a real-life mystery, and so I glommed on to this phrase I'd been hearing in my classical studies about this best-kept secret in history, which is exactly what you, you said, that this very controversial notion that the ancient Greeks used psychedelics to find God, and that just maybe they had passed a version of that along to the earliest Greek-speaking Christians. The book was to basically apply 21st century science to an older and kind of controversial idea. Uh, this came on my, on my radar for a book that was written in 1978 by a renegade trio, Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl Ruck. They released a book in 1978 called The Road to Eleusis, essentially claiming that uh, ergotized beer, so beer spiked with the naturally occurring fungus ergot, from which you can produce LSD, which is actually how Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD through this ergot, they claimed this was the central sacrament at one of the most illustrious religious rituals of the ancient world in the mysteries of Eleusis, about 13 miles northwest of Athens. And they claimed that the best and brightest of ancient Athens and Rome made a pilgrimage to this place to drink a magic potion of ergotized beer and essentially have this hallucinogenic vision of the goddess Persephone and thereby conquer their fear of death. And they also claim that if this was happening among the best and brightest of the ancient Greeks, then a few hundred years later, it's possible that some version of this ritual or ceremony was involved in the earliest celebrations of the Christian Eucharist. How's the story not been told before, do you think? I think that for, for the longest time, so from 1978 onwards, and the idea goes back even further than, than that, it's largely been these esoteric philological discussions around uh, the way ancient language can be manipulated. And there are you know, images of pottery, ancient Greek priestesses spiking wine on this painted pottery, for example. And there are bizarre passages in the New Testament that definitely call for a second look, uh, like 1 Corinthians, for example, 1130, when Paul is essentially yelling at the Corinthians for celebrating the wrong Eucharist, in his opinion, he's saying, that's why a number of you are sick and dying. And he uses the word in Greek, koimontai, which actually does mean to die. And so there's this notion of how, how is lethal wine available 
in ancient Greece. This is an age before distilled liquor, by the way. Distillation doesn't enter Europe until many centuries later. So when you talk to a classicist, they're not really surprised by this because we have lots of literature, starting with Homer, that talks about spiking wine with, uh, with plants and herbs and toxins, by the way. Let's not forget that Socrates was killed by a hemlock potion. So it's not that bizarre to classicists, but I think that science needed to get involved, or rather the, the science needed to develop. And so what's been happening over the past 10, 20 years is this scrappy young discipline, archaeological chemistry has come along. And they're able to go in and actually test these ancient vessels, these chalices, these cups, to see whether or not the, the Greeks and those after them were actually spiking their beverages with all these psychedelic material. Talk a lot about some of these archaeological chemists at MIT and University of Pennsylvania. Have they found evidence then of these chemicals in these vessels? They have indeed. Or at least if you ask them, they've, they've found evidence for spiked wine that is at least psychoactive. And so I'm not a scientist, but I'm a lawyer. And, you know, I, I made sure to, to stay close to the experts who know more than me. So I made sure to talk to Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania and Andrew Coe at MIT. Uh, these are the real cutting edge of the archaeological uh, chemistry community. So Pat McGovern, about 10 years ago, produced uh, this really interesting study about ancient Egyptian wine that was, in fact, spiked with lots of different plants and herbs. Uh, it dates to 3150 BC, so it's so old, it's pre-dynastic. But upon the chemical testing, he discovered the wine was, in fact, spiked with a number of things, including savory, wormwood, blue tansy, balm, senna, coriander, germander, mint, sage, and thyme. That, that's, a, that's the end of my list there. It was kind of striking uh, because it, it went against everything that we thought about wine. I mean, their wine is not our wine. Uh, their wine was routinely spiked with this kind of stuff. And, and McGovern himself calls wine the universal palliative. It's actually how they would uh, dose themselves with, with medicine. You know, they wouldn't take two pills and a glass of water. They would dose their medicines into wine. And so this incredible discovery at Abydos another further indication of that, but also with this mystical connotation because it seemed to have ushered the, the Pharaoh into the afterlife. And then a few years later, Andrew Coe comes along at MIT and he publishes a study about the world's oldest wine cellar in Tel Kabri, Israel, which is in Galilee, interestingly enough. And in, in his wine, which is this palatial wine among the Canaanites, this is 1700 BC, he finds a similar kind of thing. It's not just regular table wine. It's spiked with honey, storax, terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, and cinnamon, which is very, very strange. What happened to its use? Did it continue? Did it die out? Did, can we trace how the wine either became less favorable, more favorable, or why is it part of rituals today? I had, I had the exact same question for these guys. And, you know, I, I, I pulled to in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe, and all the archaeobotanists as well. And if you ask them, is there any evidence for properly psychedelic wine? The answer is basically no. So I took it upon myself to go back through these phenomenally boring archaeobotany journals and actually came across an article in the year 2000, a peer-reviewed article that talks about another kind of spiked wine that has somehow fell under the radar. It was in Pompeii, discovered by a woman named Marina Ceraldi. And she was a younger archaeobotanist at the time from Naples. And she uh, got her PhD in archaeology in the UK, comes back to Italy, is there at this dig site in Pompeii in this little farmhouse to the east of Pompeii. And like most things there, it had been miraculously preserved. 
by the volcanic eruption of Vesuvius. So we can date it to 79 AD, which is very interesting because it's that generation where the first Christians are coming to that part of southern Italy, which is known as Magna Graecia, by the way, Great Greece. So it's the place where all these mystical Greek traditions, including, you might think, this tradition of spiked wine, would find its way to Italy and just perhaps into the very early celebrations of the Eucharist. And what Marina found in these dolia, which is essentially a large storage vessel, is she found lots of macrobotanical remains, so seeds and, and plant material that she could identify because it was so well preserved. And what she found were seeds of things like opium and cannabis and henbane, which is hallucinogenic, and black nightshade. And it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't spike your wine with today, but back then we can envision that being used in these visionary ceremonies uh, among the Greek mystics. Going through these archives, these documents, do you come across any recipes for this? People might have documented making this, this wine with psychoactive chemicals. Yeah, it's interesting. You find, all, you find all kinds of recipes. I mean, that's why to the classicist, this wasn't such a bizarre idea, because when you look at the literature, the recipes just leap off the page. And for some reason, you know, the, the philologists and the linguists just weren't talking with the chemists and the botanists, at least not until recently. It's no surprise to uh, the classicist, for example, when you talk about Dioscorides. This is first century AD at the exact same time that the Gospels themselves are being written at the exact same time as this spiked wine that we found in Pompeii. So Dioscorides is the father of drugs. Every drug prescription you've ever had written for you is because of Dioscorides. He wrote this opus called the Materia Medica. And in, in book five alone, he has something like 56 recipes for spiked wine, spiking it with everything from salvia or hellebore or frankincense or myrrh or, again, henbane, these visionary things. And he even talks about spiking it with the same black nightshade that we found in Pompeii. And what he says about black nightshade is that it causes, in Greek, fantasias u aedais, which is not unpleasant visions. So here you have an, an ancient Greek pharmacist, essentially, talking about psychedelic wine. It's really bizarre. At the exact same time, again, when those early Christians are just starting their ceremonies. Later, it was presumably banned by the church. And what happened in that period? See, that, that's why I followed this mystery even more, which is, and then, then it gets really bizarre. Because the wine, I don't, th I don't think the wine does disappear. Or, or at least I couldn't find evidence of, of this, I'll call it a sacred pharmacology. It doesn't really disappear from Europe until the Middle Ages or Renaissance. We kind of lose track of it. And I, I do think the Inquisition had something to do with this, part of which was aimed at women uh, with herbal expertise. And I mean, it's, it's a nice abstract theory to, to think about. But, I, you know, again, I wanted to see evidence. I wanted to see written evidence. So I actually uh, managed to get an appointment inside the archives of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is uh, historian Carlo Ginsberg refers to it as the Archives of Repression. And it's right there inside the Vatican. And I made an appointment. Don't ask me how I got in, but I did. And, and I sat in these, uh, in these dusty archives for a week, poring over this giant 900-page tome from the 16th century. And it's just one example among many, but I sat there paging through the yellow paper, and I did, in fine fact, uh, I found more wine recipes. I found wine that was being spiked with ivy. I was reading about this woman, uh, Lucrezia, who was essentially uh, a witch in Tuscany. And she was not only spiking her wine, but also creating this incense with lots of herbs and creating these witches ointments uh, with lizards. I mean, stuff straight out of Macbeth sitting right there in the Vatican archives. Your investigation of this topic 
took you to some interesting places. I mean, the Vatican and the ruins of Greece. What was it like going to all these places, uncovering things? What was the moments along this journey where you just said, wow, this is incredible? <laughs> pretty, pretty much every step of the way. I mean, you know, it's paid to go out and find these clues. Uh, you know, uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy. Uh, my daughters, who are six and four, don't know what the heck I'm doing with my time. You know, when I when I went to law school, I, I kind of made a left turn into a different part of my life, but I never left these mysteries behind. So that it's that little boy in me, and that that kind of thrill of discovery. You know, in in the hope that there are real mysteries out there and things we don't we don't talk about. I mean, this is a this is a really central part of the ancient world that I don't think is taught in our high school mythology or our, our Western Civ classes. Uh, and so, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book is to really engender an interest in that stuff again. I mean, I was, I was very lucky to learn Latin and Greek and the last person who probably should have, and I'm not sure what the Jesuits are going to think about this, but it was the Jesuits in, uh, in this uh, Catholic boys prep school that taught me Latin and Greek and also, you know, instructed me to ask questions about the origins of the faith, to dig deep. And the Vatican has been very supportive of this investigation. Uh, I hope it, it results in a, in a conversation about some of these mysteries of the past and what it means for us today when you look at some of these clinical research happening with psychedelics at places like Hopkins and NYU or UCLA. A real cutting-edge, peer-reviewed stuff about the mystical experiences that are unleashed in the laboratory when people have a single dose of psilocybin. It's really dramatic stuff, life-changing stuff tradition of psychedelics in other cultures dating to antiquity is broad. Do you have a sense of how the history of the early church maybe interacted with some of those cultures as well? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, that, that's the thing. It's not so controversial. Uh, everyone has heard about the ayahuasca retreats in the Amazon basin or uh, the peyote ceremonies in the Native American church. It's, it's, it's kind of taken for granted that in traditional societies, the, these sacraments are still used today. You know, I wanted to show that it's not just outside, but within, at the, at the very roots. I mean, something that's to Western civilization, that it was always there. Uh, at the very end of the book, though, I do write about the confrontation of the Catholic Church with some of these traditional societies, including Peyote, uh, which uh, in 1629, this guy, Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón, writes a treatise, uh, what he calls the Treatise on the Heathen Superstitions of Mexico. And he's going out there, essentially trying to get rid of their Peyote. And interestingly, a couple centuries later, in the late 19th century, the federal government starts to get involved, too, on Native American territory inside the U.S., and they want to get rid of the peyote again. And I found this letter from the Bureau of Indian Affairs where the commissioner himself says that the use of peyote among Native Americans is, quote, interfering quite seriously with the work of the missionaries. And it really struck me because it takes me right back to the beginning. There's always this concept of a right Eucharist and a wrong Eucharist. I mean, from the very beginning, Paul is yelling at the Corinthians uh, for consuming this lethal, wrong Eucharist. You know, almost 2,000 years later, here's the federal government yelling at the Native Americans for doing the same thing. It's, it's really bizarre. Well, in talking about psychedelics in the early Christian church, one can't help but bring up revelations. You think this has some insight into that particular chapter of the Bible? <laughs> well, it, it's certainly interesting. Uh, w- without getting into the details, I'll, I'll say this. A lot of this mystical tradition can be traced to the Eastern Aegean, so the same place where John of Patmos is born, as you're referring to. Uh, so not just there, but think about the area. You're all, it's the same area that gives birth to Pythagoras of Samos. It's the same place where you find the Ephesians, right? Ignatius of Antioch in the early 2nd century writes a letter 
to the church in Ephesus, referring to the Eucharist, get this, as the pharmakon athanasias, which is the drug of immortality. So these were folks who were interested in a very different kind of Christianity than I think we have today. Through your whole journey, through what you found, what do you think you'd like the readers to take from the book, insights that you found in terms of the early uh, Christian traditions and where the traditions are today? Right. At the very end of the book, I say that, you know, this might come as a surprise, but I do consider myself a Christian and a good little Catholic boy. And I do have these questions about the roots of the faith, what I call paleo-Christianity. It's not like the pagan world went to bed in 33 AD and woke up in 34 AD as Christians. It took a few hundred years. It was this intercultural encounter. This wasn't so controversial. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has written about the influence of these mystery traditions on early Christianity. Uh, He has a paper in 1950 about this. And so I always appeal to those sober voices in the room. You know, this is not a new idea. What's new about this is what science can lend. And and that's really where where I want to go with this. Uh, So I I refer to the book as uh, the archaeological blitz on the radar. Uh, It's just the very beginning of this search for these intoxicants. But you know, together with uh, guys like Andrew Coe at MIT, I am hoping that we can test more and more chalices and vessels to see what was really going on. Because if it is, in fact, the case that the early Eucharist, at least for some Christian communities, was psychedelic, what does that mean for faith today and for religion today? I happen to think that the two aren't mutually exclusive. I do think that there's a way to responsibly incorporate drug use into traditional faith. Well, it, we were just talking with Brian Morescu. He is the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And Mr. Morescu, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.